Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In today's episode, we are talking to Ed Dixon, head of ESG at Aviva Investors' £52 billion real assets platform, which covers real estate, infrastructure, private debt and equity, and nature-based solutions. Ed has more than 18 years' experience as a sustainability expert, which includes the role of Sustainability Insights Director at Landsec, where he led the company's overall approach to sustainable design, climate risk, and supply chain transparency. Developing sustainability leaders of tomorrow, Ed also volunteers as a guest lecturer at Bayes Business School and the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. In the episode, we discuss the importance of direct institutional investment in more long-term alternative responsible investment solutions. Ed shares some specific examples to support the argument and provides insights into how he and his team at Aviva are generating win-win opportunities to effectively deploy capital towards real assets and drive tangible outcomes. We also wanted to know more about the fundamental pillars of Aviva's real assets responsible investment strategy and get Ed's view on the importance of incorporating but also embodying a value-driven strategy into the company and the overall decision-making. And, of course, we are thoroughly discussing the existing gaps in reporting and standardized data availability how this impacts the decision-making, and how Aviva is managing this issue. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, and Ed provides some unique and fantastic in-depth insights. We genuinely hope that you enjoy the conversation with Ed as much as Josephine and I did. So welcome, Ed, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Philip and I are absolutely delighted to have this time with you today. Um, welcome. Thank you, Josephine and Philip. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I think as a keen listener, this is uh, a great moment for me to be actually appearing on the podcast. So very pleased to be here. Oh, thanks, thanks, Ed. Look, we always love to start these podcasts with just an exploration of your career journey and what's brought you to where you are today and how you arrived in your role uh, and what your drivers are. So could we start with that, Ed? Absolutely. Well, I'm very lucky to have the position of Head of Responsible Investment for Real Assets for Aviva Investors. And that's the global asset management business of Aviva PLC, 325-year-old insurance company, 18.5 million customers. Now, our platform invests in the sorts of things that play an absolutely crucial role in shaping our society and our economy. So you think of everything that we're going to need in the world that we're all trying to work towards, sustainable places to live and to work, transportation, clean energy, 
all this stuff is our bread and butter. That's what we do every single day. And in terms of what actually got me here, I started in much more humble beginnings 20 years ago. So I, um, I've really gone probably from right from the bottom uh, to the top over uh, the last couple of decades. And I actually started as an apprentice carpenter on construction sites in 2002 and then went on to project managing uh, delivery of student homes. But in 2008, I lost my job in the crash and needed to find something else to do. And so I sort of uh, went up the chain a little bit and started to work for a developer. And it just so happens that my first project um, was a very beautiful, sustainable building. It was a, a Marks and Spencer's store up in Ellesmere Port. They called them sustainable learning stores. And uh, that's where they tried out all sorts of new, crazy sustainability technologies. And this was in sort of 2008, 2009. And Marks and Spencer at the time, you know, very leading organization. And they went absolutely mad. So the roof was glue land timber. The insulation was made from recycled bottles. The walls were filled with hemp. Uh, they were covered in earth to regulate the temperature. There was timber flooring, recycled tiles, green walls. I mean, it was literally, you know, the, the absolute pinnacle of a, of a sustainable building. And I was very, very lucky to see that project from the early stages of design all the way through delivery and construction into the fit out and then the handover and post-occupancy evaluation. So I saw the whole thing from end to end. And that was a really great learning for me. After that, I did some consulting uh, and then moved into development with Landsec, a FTSE 100 listed developer. And I did an MBA whilst I was there. Uh, they call it an executive MBA, but it doesn't feel very, very executive when you're working and studying at the same time. <laughs> um, and then from Landsec, uh, moved into asset management. I think the reason for ending up here is that you, asset management has the opportunity to be able to change the world when it's done in the right way. And, and that comes with a very heavy caveat that if it's not done in the right way, then it does the complete opposite of that. And I think I kind of saw that from the outside and wanted to be on the inside. So very lucky to have ended up with this role in Aviva. I love the story of your journey to, to the top. And it's actually really inspiring. And I hope that I'm sure there'll be, um, I don't hope, I'm sure there'll be many in our audience that find that um, really motivating that you can, you, you know, you, it doesn't matter where you start, you can, if this is your passion, you can you can find your, your role. So a big, big job title, really big responsibilities in role. We hear a lot about ESG and impact investing in the public markets, all of which are a form of responsible investment. Um, what does responsible investment in real assets mean for Aviva? As an asset manager, you're really, in very simple terms, you're looking after other people's money, right? And that is, uh, in most cases, for the sort of long-term institutional-backed investment that we do in real assets. Uh, that's people that have savings, a pension, uh, it backs up insurance policies. So this isn't necessarily, it's not necessarily wealth creation. It's topping up people's pensions to make sure that they'll be there in the long term. And, and that's our duty, is, is to manage money for the long term. So what we're trying to do is, is to create stable income, capital growth, that means that ultimately when you or I retire, that our pension will still be there. But to create and protect that value, we have to balance the needs of clients 
the people that we're trying to uh, look after the money for and the needs of our stakeholders, which actually in many cases is the clients themselves as, as mm. members of the public. So our stakeholders, what do we mean? Well, it's either our customers, it could be our partners in the supply chain, it could be the communities that we work in, it could be broader society. And this point about balancing is absolutely critical. Now, we can do that through understanding environmental, social and governance risk factors. That's absolutely important. But perhaps more importantly, we also need to understand impact. So everything that we do is structured around this balancing between the, the needs right now to be able to make money and to be able to prop up the pensions of uh, the the. the um, the members of the public versus the potential for negative impacts and some of the risks that we can create through our activities. And if we can keep these two things in equilibrium, then we should be able to deliver returns over very long timeframes, which is typically the way that we invest, whilst also not contributing to ruining that world, which our customers are actually going to in- retire to into themselves in the long term. I'd like to take a step back if we can and just look at your overarching strategic approach, if you like, to ESG within um, Aviva um, and the fundamental pillars that uh, are, are part of that. We've talked at a little bit more granular level about the execution of that. How how as an organisation have you been able to work with the most senior leaders in the organisation to devise your ESG strategy, but also ensure that it's fully connected to other parts of the business? Yeah, so I guess there are, there are three parts of this. The first is around integration. And as we've said before, yes, it's absolutely a hygiene factor, but it's a very important hygiene factor and we have to do it and we have to do it well. And I think probably attached to that is the evidencing and the reporting and and the kind of uh, the approach to data that we take around those ESG risks. I would also extend that really to include the notion and the understanding of impact, because I think if we're going to integrate ESG really well, we have to integrate both um, risks and and impacts. So that's the first thing. And that's really just a a kind of a hygiene point. But it's, it's so important. And over the last two and a half years since I've been in role, I've been able to amass really strong partnerships with external partners that help us to really excel on that front. So by way of an example, we work with an organization called Carbon Intelligence. Uh, We have a couple of secondees from their team that help us. And uh, we use them for a variety of different reporting purposes all the way through the asset lifecycle. And they've helped us with all sorts of things like understanding our a uh, thousand loans in 35 sectors over the last few months of last year through to supporting us with underwriting in terms of doing technical due diligence audits of assets before we buy them. Um, and all of those activities create data, which then creates the ability to be able to make good decisions, which then means that we can integrate, you know, and that's the most important thing. We've got to have those processes, those policies. We've got to have the right people in the right places, collecting the right data points, feeding into the right parts of our governance process to really say that we integrate thoroughly. I think the second point is around engagement. And you'll hear a lot about Aviva investors, or if you look us up on the website, you'll, you'll hear a lot and see a lot about engagement and, and active ownership of our assets. You know, this is not a house which is interested to 
buy into green assets, you know, wash our hands of it and, and, and sort of walk away and sit on the income. Uh, it's a house that likes to engage, that likes to be present in transactions, that likes to have an impact through everything, um, wherever, wherever there are opportunities. Now, if it take a couple of examples, um, so, you know, it's, it's very easy to invest in something green and then to make a claim that you've done something fantastic. It's actually much harder to invest in something which maybe wasn't always going to be quite so green and to make it greener or make it better for people. So take an example, we invested last year through our climate transition fund in real assets into a build-to-rent project. And when we first started working with the developer, the specification of the homes was, in fairness, fairly standard. They would say the same thing. It's not a, not a criticism by any means. It was fairly standard. But by engaging with them very early on in the process, and, and I literally, literally mean sitting down around a virtual meeting table six or nine months ago, having lots of conversations, getting people involved, understanding their business, them understanding ours, we were able to come to an agreement where we improved the specification we actually took out the specification of gas boilers and switched all of the homes to air source heat pump, upgraded the quality of the thermal envelopes so that they have an energy performance certificate rating of A, which is the best rating. And now those homes are going to be built and they'll be um, provided uh, for families in the UK um, uh, affordable rates. And that is an absolutely fantastic thing. We've ended up with a far better product, um, which is better for the developer, better for us as the investor, and actually better for the uh, stakeholders who are actually going to be living in the homes um, when, they're, when they're finished. I think another example is that, you know, too often in infrastructure debt, the transactions are quite flat. And what I mean by that is there's not much happening. Money goes in, money goes out, and that's pretty much the end of it. Now, we did a deal this year with Associated British Ports where we offered a discount on the hedging rate um, provided they meet certain uh, sustainability KPIs. And what this basically means is that over the lifetime of the debt, Associated British Ports will reduce their scope one to emissions. And that's baked into the instrument. Um, we think it was the first uh, institutional swap repack to have sustainability linked uh, KPIs in it. Um, and long may that continue, right? Because the more that you engage, the more you have the opportunity to be able to actually really affect mm -hmm. change through your financing. Yeah. And this is a great example. These are great examples, I think, of the energy transition in real terms. You've given some really good active engagement stories there and, and actually innovation around financial product development. Um, that, that give life to what the energy transition sort of really means. And I think that we need to allow space for that, to your point, don't we? Because it's very easy to take a, a snapshot uh, of a particular investment at a particular point in time, and it might not look as green as it could be. But as an investor, uh, as a, a finance provider, if you're helping people on that journey, that's exactly what gets us to 2030 uh, and 2050 um, and beyond. And do you find that in your experience through the investment landscape that you have oversight of that you have competing interests 
or all of those things that you said that might be seen to be in conflict with each other, are you finding particularly um, with the way the market is at the moment and and the, the, the strong wind that we have behind ESG investing, that there's convergence of interests uh, and the premium associated or perce- the perception of a premium around ESG investments is, is very sort of real? Absolutely. If we look at what's happening in the market at the moment, any asset manager that makes any claim that they only invest sustainably, I mean, that is just an an absolute impossibility. Mm -hmm. We're trying to meet the needs of a rapidly growing and changing society. And that is very difficult to do. A large and growing society consumes a lot. It needs a lot of energy, a lot of heat. It needs transportation. Uh, it consumes a lot of raw materials and products um, that end up as, as, as waste or as, as emissions. And that really is an enormous challenge. So any, any asset manager is always stuck in this very difficult challenge of needing to deliver returns day one whilst also considering the long-term needs of society. And, and, and that really sort of feeds straight into very practical, uh, immediate decisions that need to be made. Because if we think about something like very basic, like investing in new forms of clean energy, you'd think that you'd be able to fairly quickly get on top of what those energy, uh, those energy sources are about, something like hydrogen perhaps, quickly try to correlate investment around what we know that we need, but the intricacies of dealing with it and the risks associated with it don't necessarily always suit the sort of money that we're trying to invest um, that has very, very long time horizons and very, very low risk appetite. So we're always just dealing with that incrementally higher levels of risk from new types of things that we want to invest in that are cleaner and better than the old things that we were investing in. And that risk being at odds with the vast wall of institutional cash that wants to be invested. So that creates a a huge challenge. And every part of the financial system has to work together in order to deliver on this challenge because we're not venture capitalists, right? We're not private equity. You need other types of businesses Mm -hmm. and other types of financial market participants to come in earlier, take on those higher risks, and then scale it up to a point where big institutional managers like us can then sort of start to take part. Okay. And if we look at ESG then through the risk lens, do you see um, ESG integration then primarily as a risk management tool or opportunity management initiative or both? Yeah, I, th- I think it's both. And one thing that I would say across both of those those points is that it's really a, become a very quickly a, a hygiene factor in the industry. Maybe even two years ago, it was still probably quite a new concept. But I think now any asset manager or or any uh, participant in in the financial markets in any form that isn't on a daily basis considering this in the way that they invest or or manage their assets, um, something isn't going quite right. Now, that's for good good reason, um, because um, ESG is all about financial materiality started way back in 2004, um, led by Kofi Annan, um, then in the UN. 
who challenged business to incorporate ESG factors into the way that they invested. And that quickly became really synonymous with financial materiality. So what we're really trying to do through ESG is to uncover the things that are financially material. Now, in my view, I suppose in private markets, when we are investing for the long term, we invest in a very different way. So for starters, it takes absolutely ages. Uh, if we're going to look at investing in an electric vehicle charging company, or if we're going to go and look at a solar plant in Spain, or we'll look at a railroad in Tanzania, or the huge spread of different assets that we could invest in, the timescales that we could be looking at might be 5, 10, 50, 40 years in some cases. Now, of course, we obviously need to understand the risk factors about those investments before we invest. So I think whilst ESG has really ballooned in liquid markets as a sort of quantitative overlay to the way that um, people invest, my argument is that in private markets, actually for much longer, it has been an important part, not to say that everybody did it, but an important part of how people should have invested. Because if you're investing for the long term, you cannot afford to make basic mistakes about environmental pollution or um, impacts on stakeholders that then cause problems with your reputation. Yeah. So it's good, good, good core risk management, um, good core strategic thinking to embed a lot of this thinking that you've just been talking about um, into um, corporate strategy, actually, that's what I'm hearing. Talk about the risks, but can you also give a bit of a, a background on the opportunities that you see within ESG investing or ESG in general? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we've seen in the global economy over the last couple of years is huge and profound change. And that, especially now, is set against the backdrop of enormous uncertainty. But I think where there is change, there is opportunity. And Mark Carney very famously said in 2019, there will be great fortunes made along this path. And I think now that the market has seen and possibly in some ways started to understand the opportunity, we're really going to see huge, huge change in the private markets as investors and asset managers start to crowd in around some of the solutions that we need. And that change has happened really quickly because we've, we've gone from you know, ESG or sustainability being something that people feel like they have to do to actually being something that is the greatest uh, investment opportunity of a lifetime. I think one thing to kind of caveat that is to say that institutional investment comes in right at the end of the risk curve. We're, you know, we're not venture capital, we're not private equity, we're coming in slightly later down the line where projects have essentially been de-risked by government. So it will take changes in government policy, the right sorts of incentives from government to allow asset managers and, and, and hence large-scale institutional investment to start to back some of the technologies and the products and, and the, the services that we need in order to really decarbonize and to, to sort our economy out. I think one thing that I would finally add to that as well is that asset managers especially have to tread very, very carefully here. Greenwashing has become the topic and there is absolutely nowhere to hide for asset managers that have not got a properly well thought through investment thesis for whatever it is that they're investing in. 
And we saw quite recently, actually, uh, the German asset manager DWS, their shares fell 13% um, following reports that they had misled their clients about sustainable investing. So quite salient point there, but massive opportunity, but we must tread carefully. And it's interesting what you say about quantitative analysis, um, I guess, versus qualitative overlays. How do you view the assessment of ESG factors in your decision making? do, 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 do you look at it purely from a quantitative perspective and look at you know factors that help you assess um, outperformance or are you applying that that qualitative overlay as well? So if we think about real assets investing, we really get straight into the weeds and uh, we need to think about ES and G factors that could be potential risks to the investment over the long term. We need to also understand the impacts. But the problem in terms of the read across to liquid markets where we can take a very informed quantitative approach is that we have very little comparable data in real assets. Mm -hmm. So the approach that we usually take is to try and look at, does this particular investment, be that a energy from waste plant or a a rolling stock uh, for for rail or whether it's a, a car manufacturing plant or something like that, um, does this particular investment represent that it is it, but the best it possibly can be in its sector or whether it has a trajectory towards being best in sector? Yeah. And we're lucky to have a few benchmarks that we can use there, certainly in real estate, less so in infrastructure, where we can understand how one investment might compare to another. But unfortunately, we are still in the private markets a long way off having comparable data where we can compare one asset to another and take that really robust quantitative approach that we've seen emerging in liquid markets over the last few years. I actually, while we're on the the topic of data, I just want to drill a bit deeper into it. Uh, So you mentioned that you have um, ways of comparing different investments. What are some of the approaches that you use in terms of data extraction analysis, but also then reporting and, you know, thinking further, what are the challenges? You've just mentioned one that, you know, the data is potentially simply not there, but can you just give a bit more more background on that? Sure. So the data challenge for real assets investors is the thing that everyone talks about at conferences, uh, the thing that is the big sticky problem that we we can't quite find our, a way to to get our heads around. And the reason for that is because it really is a, it's a wicked problem. It's incredibly complex. So if you give you a couple of examples, one of the big challenges that everybody talks about a lot in real estate is the gathering of data from buildings where you don't have control of the building. Now, that might sound like a really simple thing. Well, you know, you own the building. Why can't you just go and collect the data? But actually, if we think about it, most of the people that are listening today they probably will have either be living in a rented property or they will have lived in a rented property at at some point in their life. And when your landlord comes around knocking and says, well, I'd quite like a year of energy data, please. Some people might say yes. Some people might say no. Just depends, right? You might have something else on. You might be too busy. You might uh, think that your landlord was maybe asking for a bit too much information, right? So if you scale that problem up to commercial real estate, we've got hundreds of thousands of buildings around the world that experience exactly that problem. So the the way that one of the ways that we try to unlock that is through incentives. So by working with occupiers uh, in our buildings to actually offer them something first before we go and ask for something in return. So that could be, 
a site audit to understand how the building could be transformed to start to approach net zero. It could be electric vehicle charging infrastructure for their staff or their visitors to use. It could be um, solar panels on the roof so they can get cheaper energy. Very basic things that we can offer to them that help to sort of grease the wheels a little bit and get the conversation going. I think if we think about a comparable example in infrastructure, most large infrastructure projects have several lenders. And each of those lenders is coming to the market uh, to fulfill the, you know, the typically the, 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 the debt uh, pro- uh, proportion of a, a large infrastructure transaction. And there might be anything between two or three or possibly even up to sort of eight, nine, ten different lenders on any one transaction. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a similar sort of problem where if one of the lenders perks up and says, well, I'd quite like all the data, please, on your, on your um, project then what the borrower is quite at at liberty to say is, well, no one else has asked for it, so why should we give it to you? Um, So really, to unlock that, again, you need to have every single borrower coming to the transaction um, to work with the equity partner to say, we all want this data, and we all want it in the same specification, uh, and we'd like to work with you to decarbonize your asset or do something do something else that's going to be valuable over the long term but unless everybody's asking together then we won't make any progress so there has been a really good breakthrough on that over the past few months where we've worked with a lot of other large infrastructure lenders to agree a format and to go out to the market and say this is the format that we're going to be using to exchange between borrowers and lenders so that everybody's asking the same and if you're on the equity side you could be providing one set of information that would be good for everybody rather than lots and lots of different formats. So so the question, it sounds like it's more of a proactiveness between the different partners to come together to make this happen in terms of providing the right set of data that works for everyone rather than having a standardized framework that is given or that is in a way mandatory to adhere to. And without that, it's going to be that data gap might potentially always be there if you have certain partners who are not necessarily willing to provide the right data. Absolutely. Completely agree. And I guess to uh, to answer that question, someone told me a story once around ethical auditing in supply chains uh, in the fashion industry. And many years ago, before ethical auditing was a big thing, you would have lots and lots of different audit companies representing lots of different high street shops going around to audit all of the various different factories, be that in Bangladesh or China or otherwise. And on one of these audits, uh, one of the auditors noticed that there were two different fire extinguishers on the wall, one at one height and one at another. The fire extinguishers are exactly the same. And they asked, well, why have you got two fire extinguishers at different heights? And they said, well, this auditor using this platform likes to have the fire extinguisher at this height. And this other auditor using this other platform likes to have the fire extinguisher at that height. So we just have two fire extinguishers. It makes it easier. Now, if we offer another, you know, a sort of comparable to that in in private markets, what you have at the moment is lots and lots of clients all asking for different forms of data in in, in different styles and different formats. Then you have asset managers in the middle uh, acting as the bridge to the market, also doing the same. And then you also have the borrowers who are, or, or perhaps the occupiers, who similarly are enormously fragmented in nature. You can't, you know, you can't sort of draw a ring around that particular side of the market. Um, so it, there's a lot of chaos in between those three actors. What we are starting to see is organisations coming together. So the consultants in the pensions industry have done this recently 
TCFD has made a huge impact on um, people starting to coalesce around the same metrics. And we're starting to see some of these dominant frameworks starting to come together and join up the dots between the money and, and the market. So things are starting to happen reasonably quickly there, but it's going to take a long time until we get to that point where we have easily comparable data between different asset classes and different sectors in the private markets. And that's uh, it, it speaks to the the role and influence that an organisation like Aviva um, can have because in taking a lead in 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 trying to set a, a, a or establish a standardised approach to information gathering, that's you know will have a ripple effect in its own right. We need people, don't we, to to take a lead, but also connect that information gathering to the frameworks that are there that are being mandated for certain players in the market. So I sort of applaud that first approach. And it's certainly going to help the private market as well, isn't it? Understand the demands that will be placed on them for, for borrowings and investment, for not just now, but for, but for the future. Because we know that this is only going to crescendo, isn't it? The demands on uh, for, for data in certain formats. So that's great. I mean, um, what, what do you see the change in the reporting landscape then looking like, um, Ed, to ensure greater transparency and accountability, you know, particularly in the private market? Um, you know, we've got the data, now what do we do with it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I think two things that have helped massively. One is TCFD because the Department for Work and Pensions uh, changes to the regulations for pension schemes now means that most large uh, pension schemes are all asking for the same data, sometimes in different formats, but broadly it's the same underlying data that they're after. And then more recently, sustainable finance disclosure regulations and whatever we end up in the UK in terms of the, the, the UK's approach to that, that is also starting to coalesce investors around a similar set of metrics. So, and there is quite a good deal of crossover between those two. I suppose what's important is not just the metrics themselves and the disclosures, which will inevitably be be made. It's what we do with it. And this comes back to the point that we made earlier around comparability. If we think about a really practical example of something that's coming up in our investment portfolio, let's say an energy from waste plant, If we're looking at whether to invest in an energy from waste plant, we need to know whether that energy from waste plant is better or worse than the next one up the road. So if we can have our understandings of impact, if we can have our climate risk metrics, if we can have our carbon intensity metrics all in the same place, comparable and measurable, then we can make an informed decision. We can understand whether this particular asset is better than that particular asset. And that is exactly where we need to get to. So we're so close to getting there. Um, One of the major challenges to arriving at that point will be in lending. Because in debt, obviously, we have an existing portfolio of assets. And to go back retrospectively over debt that could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years old in some cases, and to unearth those projects and start to understand them so that we can then understand what we might be investing in in the future. That is a big lift. So it's a big barrier to getting companies to understand their own books of investments, I think. 
Yeah, and you've mentioned some of the the data that's been gathered around, in particular the the E in ESG. What are you seeing in terms of trends within the S? I mean, we had on Monday, the 28th of February, the release of the amended social EU social taxonomy. What, what, what are you seeing there? What's your approach? Yeah, I think for me, social is always local. And that's the thing that makes it really tricky. You know, we are one of the UK's largest social infrastructure asset managers. We've got over 12 billion um, of AUM in social uh, infrastructure assets. And... Um, but the key point about that is what's the difference between our money and anyone else's? We have to be able to invest in such a way that creates local impact. Uh, and by way of a practical example, um, I remember working on data centers uh, a few years back, built a whole series of large data centers in uh, the Netherlands for one of the major global technology companies. And we went over there and start, tr- started to try to launch uh, an employment program. Because at the time in the UK, a lot of the focus was around young people that weren't in education or employment or training. So we arrived in the Netherlands and said, well, we've got this fantastic employment program and we'd like to start it over here. But actually in the Netherlands, the problem is the complete opposite. They don't have an issue with getting young people into work. They have problems with getting older people into work. And that lesson was really important for me because it it was a mistake and it made me realize that whatever you try to do in terms of social impact is always limited to its very particular context. So anytime we try to draw any conclusions about what the best thing to invest in is from a social perspective, we often come across uh, hurdles. Now, I think saying all that, we have to have something which guides us as to how we invest, right? So the social taxonomy is absolutely welcome. Uh, and I think when, as we get to even more detail on that, that's obviously going to help to flesh out and provide a little bit of robustness in the market in terms of you know, making sure that we aren't having uh, kind of purpose wash and social wash type claims from asset managers. Um, but I think also at a more kind of local level, it's so important that we always remember that any claims that are being made have to be compared against what was needed in that particular location. So it's no good building another, yet another office building or um, providing uh, you know, even more uh, jobs in construction in an area where those markets are completely saturated, right? Um, and, and that could be down to, to the individual kind of micro location, or it could be down to um, the country that you're operating in. So I think the balance of those two things, yes, we need those big uh, high-level frameworks. We also need to remember that social is always local. How do you um, instill in your investee companies um, or or impose on your investee companies an obligation to adopt transition pathway initiatives or science-based targets? Are you helping them adopt better strategies for the future and better KPIs that then lead into your reporting requirements as well? Do you take it that far? Yeah, so I suppose if we think about and contextualise this point, in real assets, what are we we doing? We're either a lender Mm -hmm. and we're one of the largest uh, non-bank lenders in the UK into commercial real estate and infrastructure. 
We could be an owner in terms of a private equity structure where we've actually got a seat on the on the on the board and we're running the company, or we're a a landlord. We're an owner of the building who we're, and we're renting it out. And in all of those situations, it isn't always quite so simple as being able to make a change. You often need, as with everything, to engage to bring the change about. Mm-hmm. And this is especially true in, in real estate where we have occupiers because those occupiers are our customers. You know, we don't have a seat on the board. We can't tell them what to do. Um, they are our customers and we treat them like very much like customers. Um, and even in lending, you know, similarly, these are our customers. We lend uh, money and we, we're trying to generate repeat business with borrowers that will come back to us because we want to be lending to them and, and them not going to their next lender down the road. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a slightly different lens. And I would say it's all based on engagement and incentives because you've got to, you know, it's a it, it, we'll scratch your back, you scratch ours type situation. We've got to offer something as uh, an incentive in order to get people to go in the right direction. So a good example of this is our sustainable lending program in commercial real estate. Um, so this is just commercial mortgages, uh, and it would typically be small or medium-sized companies, uh, perhaps companies that aren't quite large enough to access listed debt. And those companies are going to be financing perhaps construction of or, or refinancing of, of existing buildings. And we launched a program over a, just over a year ago now to deliver a billion of, of sustainable transition loans. And going back to your question, the KPIs that are baked into that sustainable transition loan framework are the sorts of KPIs that are material to those underlying borrowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in exchange for them delivering on these KPIs, we offer them a discount in the cost of their debt. So it's big enough to, to make a difference, not huge, but certainly big enough to make a difference and to be attractive and good enough to act as an incentive. Now, that is is all parties coming together. So you have the asset owner that said, okay, we'll take a slightly lower return here on the proviso that in the long term, these will be better companies to deal with. The asset manager is taking a little bit of a hit in terms of going out and doing the engagement with these borrowers. The borrower is probably taking a little bit more time to structure their lend it, their borrowing in this case, in order that they can come up with the right materials to be able to plan and then deliver against these sustainability KPIs. So everyone's doing something extra to what they would normally do. And that's hard work for some companies. But actually, when everyone's doing it together, then it can bring about huge benefits. And I would argue that there's no greater impact than the impact that can be brought about through engagement, top to bottom, from asset owners to asset managers, all the way through to borrowers and occupiers. Yeah, I mean, it's a continuous feedback loop, isn't it? And there's such a huge uh, amount of influence and, and impact that can be had through engagement. Again, there's some great examples of that. Um, I want to loop back, actually, to the start in many respects, because you told us your route to leadership right at the start of, uh, of this podcast. And I know that Philip is very interested in asking a little bit more about what good leadership looks like. So, Philip, over to you. Yes. Well, initially, I wanted to ask you about your career and how you got to where you are today, especially around, as it seemed, you know, you had this very clear focus on sustainability right from the beginning. But as you've already walked us through that journey, I think I want to focus more on 
you being now in a leadership role, you need to take decisions probably on a daily basis and probably tough decisions as well. And throughout your career on a personal level, you've had to take serious decisions. But is there a specific process that you follow for yourself in terms of making decisions and also knowing that is the right decision? Is there something that you can share on how you make that? I think as a head of sustainability in any sort of a company, you have the enormous privilege of being able to achieve through others. And I guess the cost of that is that you always have to take people with you. So I almost would challenge whether we always make decisions ourselves or whether we need to create the environment for companies to, and for individuals working in companies to make the best decisions for themselves. So I guess my approach is over the last couple of roles that I've had, so in certainly in land securities that then became Landtech and then now in Inviva Investors, I've always followed the approach of appreciative inquiry. It's a change management methodology, um, which essentially is based on, you know, arriving in a business and asking what's working, trying to do more of that because it's working, looking at the things that maybe aren't working quite so well, and then not setting the direction, but working with individuals through multiple iterative conversations to start to develop an answer. And through that engagement, thereby winning people's trust and hopefully ending up at the right decision. So I would say there's comparatively, compared to other senior leadership roles, not a lot of decision-making that I need to do other than the day-to-day stuff. But if I get the right buy-in from the people around me in the right roles, and if they trust in me and believe in me, and we go on this iterative journey together without being too prescriptive about the, the, the destination, then I think we can end up making great decisions that will end up benefiting companies and benefiting the wider world. Yeah. And I think the beauty about that is that you really create um, win-win situations or even win-win-win situations, right? Rather than you know, some situations where you will always have a winner and a loser. So I think, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like that answer a lot. Thank you. It also means that um, you're creating a very agile organisation yes because the iterative process that you're going through means it can flex uh, very quickly to new market circumstances. And I think with the plethora of regulation that we have, and sometimes the decision you make today might not be relevant tomorrow, actually. So you have to <laughs> you have to flex. So um, that's a, a fantastic example or a fantastic um, method to, to, to a, a allow for agility within the organisation. And that's probably a very good place for us to 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 stop, Ed, and 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 thank you for your time today and and sharing with us your enormous experience and leadership um, within this um, space and, and and influence. Actually, you've given us some great examples of impactful influence. Influence. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Josephine. Thank you, Philip. It's been an absolute pleasure.